When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello and welcome to the EDH RecCast. My name is Joey Schultz and I'm joined, as always, by my fantastic co-hosts. Up first, he confused a plus one counter with a counter spell. It's Matt Morgan. So this past weekend, I took a trip, took the train uh, to get where I was going, and I asked the conductor, you know, how many times have you ever seen a train derailed? And he very glumly looked at me and said, you know, I'm not really sure. It's, a, it's kind of hard to keep track. <laughs> keep track. Oh no! I, I, oh, I hope wow. he was joking because, like, that's a very dark joke. Uh, it might be <laughs> yeah, a, really. a macabre waltz if it were a, a, a magic card. <laughs> uh, I'm sure that there's like it would have a crew cost of something, something. I don't know. You're really sending me through a tunnel on this uh, one. That, why, that was why don't a bad we just, response. Let's just let's just take the bullet train over to Dana then. <laughs> there we go. That's so much better. I appreciate you. Up next, he is building a Rocco deck for modern because he's very nostalgic for that old cartoon, Rocco's Modern Life. It's Dana Roach. Uh, in honor of the upcoming Baldur's Gate set, uh, what material is a magic skillet made of? Uh, uh, Ca- cast iron. Train? I cast don't know. iron, Joey. Skeleton would have been appropriate as well. Hey, oh, <laughs> there my necromantic <laughs> heart. Ah, oh, I like that one a lot. That was, <laughs> we got there. I, I'm I'm glad when I can actually understand. You, so I appreciate your patience with me. Anyway, this is the EDH RecCast. EDH Rec is the best deck building resource on the web for the commander format, compiling data from deck lists all over the internet to provide helpful recommendations for new commander decks. And here on the podcast, what we like to do is give all of that data, a little more context. Dana, do you mind telling us what it is that we're talking about in this week's episode? We're talking about uh, cards we wanted to like but didn't quite make the cut, a.k.a. cards in our maybe boards. There it is. Yeah, these are the ones just on the fringe. They're like the 101st card, the 102nd card, the 103rd card. Like we still have these cards in a pile right next to our deck boxes. And we just want to talk about why they didn't quite make the cut and maybe what would allow them to make the cut. And just all those cards that just aren't quite in the deck and why that is, because that is a very big component of the deck building process. Should be really interesting. Real quick, before we get into our main topic, we want to thank Chase, aka Manicurves, for assisting me with the post-production work of the podcast. Thank you so so much chase and of course we want to thank our sponsors for the podcast as well the edh Recast is sponsored by card kingdom and a tcg player uh, one is dungeons the other is dragons and everyone else is <laughs> basements and geckos or something uh, just go wow. to edh rec and click on the card in question and choose the vendor link down below doing so supports both the site and the show and if you prefer to support the show directly, you can do so over at patreon.com slash EDHRecCast. We have patron tiers of all levels. Whether you want to see the episodes a day early, you want to join our Discord community, maybe. We have games going on all the time. You can submit challenge stats over there. There's all sorts of fun things going on over at patreon.com slash EDHRecCast. Just a great way to support the show and get yourself some perks at the same time. And one of those perks just happens to be the weekly shout-out for a patron just for signing up, just for supporting us. So this week, we want to give a very special shout-out to Felix Mortem. So hopefully you don't have a brother named Post, because that gets really weird. <laughs> that's that's so silly. Although, hey, if it was Post, would that be like the Post Malone, like Magic Playing Family? Would that be it? Uh, is this also a bad joke? Have I sent us on another bad joke, you guys? I You may have. Uh, this, this is very dark, dark start to the episode, <laughs> I do have to say. <laughs> 
It's very weird. But you know what? You know, while I was hanging out with the Command Zone crew in LA, I actually did get to meet Post Malone. And like the first thing he said to me was, I love EDH track. And that was a really highlight. That was a great moment. So if that is the, the brother of any of our listeners, um, I just, I, I, I don't know. I think that's really cool. I would appreciate this. This would be nice, right? Yeah. Right? So, so Matt, thanks. Thank yeah. you, Felix, is what we're saying. <laughs> Yes, thank you, Felix, is what we're saying. <laughs> like your train joke, we may have gotten a little bit derailed. So let's try and get back on topic here. We are talking about cards in our maybe boards. This is a pretty straightforward thing. Just, you know, those cards that are still in the piles right next to our decks and why they don't quite make the cut in those decks. Matt, how about we throw it right to you? Get us started. What is a card that just tragically is not actually making it into your deck and and Why? So this is a card. I mean, you you mentioned you know we we may have these in a pile next to us. I actually do. I have five of these sitting in a pile two feet from me because I was very very hopeful for this card to be good. Uh, I was extremely high on it. Never worked out. And that card is Aid from the Cowl. So that card is three green green for an enchantment that has Revolt. So it reads at the beginning of your end step, if a permanent you control revealed or excuse me, if a permanent you control left the battlefield this turn, you reveal a top card of your library. And if it's a permanent card, you may put that onto the battlefield. Otherwise, you may put it on the bottom of your library. This card has so much upside. And if you know me, you know I love cheating big things into play. That's just something mm. that my inner Timmy just gets so excited to do. But this card, every time that I've seen it, it's just been a five mana, don't do a whole lot. And it, maybe you get a, a free card every now and then. It's just... It, this one and this whole episode actually feels like what Dana always talks about when you know this card is fantastic for other people, but it's never good for me. All of my <laughs> cards fall into that category of cards that I've seen do a lot of work, but for me, it just it never seems to come together. This card is definitely one of those. That's so funny. And actually, speaking of Dana, Dana, you recently used Aid from the Cowl as a, it was a listener submitted challenge, actually. It was one of our challenge to stats picks, which if you want to see a full spreadsheet of our challenge to stats picks, you can find them mm -hmm. if you are on mm -hmm. our Patreon. Mm -hmm. oh, plug, plug. I'm trying to do the Matt thing here. Um, but yeah, no, Dana, you had submitted this as a challenge for blink decks, like Rune of the Hidden Realm, for example, because that is a strategy that has a leave the battlefield type of effect already built in. And I think we right. use that maybe treasure tokens would be good for it as well. But Matt, Matt, it does seem to you your decks aren't as strongly themed in those directions to enable this effect regularly, maybe? Or what's going on? Well, I, yeah, I, and now you say treasure, like there's probably been a lot of help for this, but also green shouldn't have treasure, so that's a whole other argument. <laughs> but yeah, de definitely. This To me, this always feels like a just a worse version of Lurking Predators. Yeah. The fact oh. that eight from the cowl for one only can happen once per turn, that's my biggest knock with it. Uh, you, so you have to have a... Con a condition met to maybe get one card every turn. So maybe you polymorph a, a creature token that you suicide in uh, and, and send it, it gets blocked, dies, whatever. So maybe that's something that happens, but that only happens once per turn. And that's where I think the biggest struggle I have with it is uh, we always talk about cards that get better because whenever they say each opponent or each opponent's end step, stuff like that, mm. if or at the beginning of each end step, the revolt trigger happened, I think this card would be so, so significantly better. And I guess it's important to maybe separate here the difference between cards that are specifically good and cards that are kind of generally good. Mm -hmm. And Aid from the Cowl is like one of those ones that when we first saw it, you were hoping it would be generally good. Like it would be something you would consider for a lot of decks running green. And I want it being mm. something that the deck needs to be really specific for it to function. I, I do like your comparison there, Matt, between this and Lurking Predators. Like, Lurking Predators is probably going a little bit too far in the uh, scales to the multiplayer environment direction. Probably. And this card maybe is a, a little bit too scaled back in that way to be generally useful. And it does feel as though, like, the ideal power level was probably somewhere in the middle of each of those cards. Because, I mean, Lurking Predators, whew, that card's ridiculous. And I have seen you do some absolute work with that card. And, yeah, Lurking Predators, this card is not. Um, but, yeah, that's a really interesting pick. And uh, I, I can totally see why it's like just on the fringe for you. Like you've got decks where like, oh, your Vivictus Asmati deck really wants to cheat enormous creatures in with this, but mm -hmm. I can't quite get there. It just needs a little bit, a little bit more oomph maybe would have helped. Dana, how about you? Let's move to one of your maybe board cards. Um, so, so first, actually, I'm, I'm going to pull this back a little bit and, and, and talk about what I thought about when we came up with this as a topic. Um, hmm. And that's because the amount of cards designed for Commander in recent years and just the sheer amount of cards we've got mm. has created this kind of weird issue. I've heard people talk about maybe it being a problem with staples. I don't think it's really that there's too many Commander staples, quote unquote. 
there's just a lot of great cards. And I, I, <laughs> yeah. I, I, I think back to when I started playing Return to Ravnica era, I started playing Commander. And to use an example, if I would build like a mono black deck, looking at the removal spells available at the time, you know, Go for the Throat was kind of considered a premium removal spell in mono black. You had mm-hmm. Dismember Saw play, Murder was something that people played regularly, Tragic Slip. All very solid cards, but like maybe none really rose above the other as being amazing. People still play Doomblade and Terror to, to hit their, their amount of removal mono black. Today, Deadly Rollick is a crazy good card. Infernal Grasp, mm. Baleful Mastery, Defile are all amazing. And none of them are, are what, you know, I would say like things you have to run necessarily. I wouldn't call them a staple but they all are fantastic in a way that none of the removal spells maybe were seven or eight years ago. And what I think that has done is it's made it more difficult to run those kind of fun off meta cards because there's just so many absolute bombs. Hmm. Um, I, I used to run a card called Sever the Bloodline back in the day. It was a four mana exile sorcery speed removal spell that hit a creature and all creatures with the same name. So yeah, it was slow, but it was an exile effect. And I played against a lot of token decks, so I like plenty of times could hit a whole token swarm with it. Oh. I just would never run that today. It was fine back then. It wasn't amazing. Today, there's just so many great spells that like I couldn't justify putting that into a deck. So I think that's what created this, this kind of topic in the first place is right now we've hit the point where there's just so many absolute bombs that you're choosing between bombs for the most part versus choosing between <laughs> those spells that are like kind of on the cusp, so to speak. Yeah. Um, so all of that said, <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, the, the first card I want to talk about is Zendikar Resurgent. And I, I'm going to kind of lump this in with a few cards. Uh, Grave Betrayal would be one. Um, Mizzik's Mastery would be one. <gasps> They're kind of collectively cards that, that cost you so much mana that you can't cast them early, which feels terrible when you get them on your opening hand or you know draw them on turn two or turn three. And then when the late game rolls around, when you can cast them, the question becomes, do I want to take the entire turn off to cast this thing that might be really powerful, but also isn't necessarily going to win me the game that turn? And those become very difficult for me personally to run. Having that choice to, to put those cards in the game that in my deck that, that feel terrible early and late sometimes feel kind of terrible too. I would say if if you cast Mizzix's Mastery late in the game and you don't win, you did something wrong. Agreed. I, I guess it depends on your <laughs> yes. deck too. Right, right. I mean, I, the, the, but like the, the the decks I have tried it in, for example, I put it in my Landfall deck where it would generate a bunch of Landfall triggers because it would hit, you know, Cultivate or Kadama's Reach or whatever, a bunch of those spells. But like didn't, that didn't win the game that turn necessarily either. It, it was just... So, so it got to the point where it just kind of felt bad to spend that much mana on a thing that wasn't going to win. Um, sure. So that, that's what Zendikar Resurgence is my pick. I love that card. I remember when it came out, I was like, I can't believe they printed this. I put it in a couple decks, and every time I would draw it or have it in my hand, I'd be like, I don't want this right now. <laughs> oh, wow. So it's one of those cards I always consider, but it never makes the cut because there's been so many moments where it just feels bad to have in hand. The, okay, so this, this is so, so funny to me. And for the record, Zendikar Resurgent is showing up in over 37,000 decks. Yes. This is, I think, one of the more popular cards we've talked about in a while. And it's so funny listening to you read off those cards. You mentioned Grave Betrayal as well. Grave Betrayal might be a little bit more obscure for people. That is a seven-mana enchantment where when your opponent's creatures die, uh, you get them on your side of the field with a plus one counter on them, and they become zombies. And I also love that card to bits that is a card that i also have in my maybe board so dana we've got a connection there because i really like that one you play a wrath and all of the stuff is now belong to you oh it's beautiful but taking that turn off and sort of putting a big target on yourself definitely feel it with a card like that mizix's mastery i do definitely think requires like the right home for it and like in a stormy type of deck it is the game winning spell sure but to hear you say that zendikar resurgent is not a card that works for you honey Oh my God, like Zendikar Resurgent <laughs> is a card that I get trounced by regularly in my family meta. My stepdad plays it, my brother plays it. Like, this is, that card regularly absolutely ruins my day. So I will act as our comment section real, real quick and be like, Dana, I can't believe that you don't actually put this but card But do you run into me of your green decks, Joey? 
I there we I go. There we go. Green, got him. Got him. But, got him. <laughs> but at the same time, let's be aware of what type of green decks I'm playing. I am playing necromantic decks. I'm cheating mana costs all over the place. But if you're putting this into a, a deck that cares a lot about creatures, this is a great draw engine. It doubles your mana and it draws you cards. So like my stepdad has it in his Rin and Sari inseparable deck because he wants a lot of card draw and this helps that out a whole lot. So I would totally advocate Dana, you should you you could try this one out more, but I also get it because you've caught me. Yes, I'm not. I'm also not running this card <laughs> in my decks too. So uh, fair, but I think my point still stands, even if I don't have evidence to back myself up right now. So so I I agree with the point that both of you made about grave betrayal. How you have to take a turn off in order to cast this really, and that's mm-hmm. where a lot of these cards that we're going to talk about this whole episode I think fall into the this this space of. They're they're very very powerful cards, but the fact that they a lot of times there's going to be probably a, a big man investment to get them, and if they're an enchantment that come down and don't immediately do anything, a lot of mm-hmm. times when you get to that stage of the game, it's so competitive and so tight you can't afford to be taking a turn off to do something big that's not going to actually do anything big that turn. It, if it doesn't affect the board, that mm-hmm. is the problem that you run into when it is so much mana. Exactly. And so, you know, since we're talking about seven mana spells, I'll throw out one of mine here. Also a seven mana black spell. Peer into the abyss is one of my favorite card designs maybe ever. And I can never justify putting it into a deck. That is the seven mana sorcery that says target player draws cards equal to the half of the number of cards in their library. And that player loses half of their life and you round up each time. Draw half your deck, lose half your life. Yes. Yes, please. Oh my, yes. That is so delicious. You have to discard so many cards. If you have anything that cares about draw triggers, then that will also be like, ah, like if there's that new Quasar Augur of Agonies card, for example, uh, that makes opponents lose life whenever you draw cards like that would be that that is absolutely able to be a finisher card. For my purposes, I would love to use it to like fill up my hand and then fill up my graveyard. But then I have to wait a turn and I just cut my life in half. And boy, is there a target on my face right at that moment. So this is a harder card to justify these days for me. I think the first time you cast it on stream, Joey, I hit it with a Narcissus Reversal <laughs> and got the draw. Oh, that's card. right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh. So yeah. Is that what scared me off of this card? Is that why it's in my baby board right now? Did I black that, that memory out? <laughs> a traumatic memory you've suppressed. I peered into the abyss and the abyss peered back. What you saw was Narcissus Reversal, yeah. (laughs) That is so... Well, and here's actually another issue that comes up with this one is that Smothering Tithe is an enormously powerful and popular card. And if I go here playing a peer into the abyss on myself, then I am letting that person probably get like 40 treasure. And that is a big risk. And it's a very likely risk to occur in most games as well because Smothering Tithe is such a powerful and popular card. So that is another thing that also kind of keeps this card a little bit on edge for me where I'm like, "Uh, if I have this in my hand and someone has a Smothering Tithe, this is a much harder card to justify casting in that moment. And maybe I might need a a more efficient draw spell or a more efficient graveyard filler card instead of this. So uh, it's it's tough. I even want to put this into my Virtus and Gorm deck, which cuts people life in half because it would be so on theme for that but like <laughs> i have learned from narset's reversals that letting my opponents draw half of their deck is usually a bad idea so well and, and the funny part about all of this is we've talked about cards that are like all these cards that we've mentioned so far are in literally tens of thousands of decks right right yes. so it's clear that these are very popular and powerful cards but we just we can't bring ourselves personally to play them so if you're out there and you're hearing us kind of bemoan our bad experiences <laughs> We're happy that you've had good ones, but we're just yes, uh, absolutely. It's, it's 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 one of those I I wish I had your experiences type of moments. That this, this is what makes the game so rich. That some of these cards work for some folks, some of these cards don't work. But like that doesn't make any of it wrong. It just means that I am afraid of casting this card when Dana has two blue mana up. Um, and, <laughs> wow, I like legit suppressed that memory, and it's amazing to me. Okay, we talked about some big expensive stuff. Matt, do you have any cards in your maybe board that aren't quite as expensive and they're, you know, aren't castable for different reasons? I do. So I have one that, like, in theory is very, very great. Uh, It's played in Vintage. Like, that's the type of power that this is. But this card is Archon of Amiria. Archon of Amiria is just three mana, so it's two and a white for a two, three flying Archon. And it says each player can't cast more than one spell each turn and non-basic lands your opponent's control enter the battlefield tapped. So it's an efficient hate bear type of creature. It's low mana investment. It's a two three flyer. So it's got it. It's okay at blocking. It's flying. So yeah, there's a lot of stuff to like about it. 
But the fact that it limits your own spells in addition to your opponents, that's where I think I get caught up the most. Because mm. if I'm putting this in a deck, it's three mana, It's so it's a fairly low-cost creature, so I want to put it in an aggressive deck. But if I'm playing an aggressive deck, I want to be playing more than two spells per turn. Like, th this limits me more than it limits my opponents a lot of times. So, yes, while it may be slowing them down with their non-basic lands, it it's such a double-edged sword. I just... I struggle. I tried to like this. I wanted to like this card so much, but I just I've never been able to to justify it because I've I've seen it on the battlefield for myself and I have three creatures in hand that I could be playing, but I can't cast any more of them or I only cast one per turn. So mm. it slows myself down and if I'm playing an aggressive deck, I don't want to be slowed down and I'm also probably not putting this in a more control style deck because I'm playing either some board wipes or something else. So this requires such a specific build around or a specific power level maybe even. So if you're, if you're playing at those CEDH tables, maybe this is a card for you, but for the type of decks that you know we, we tend to play here on, on this podcast, this just isn't what I want to be doing and it hurts myself more than it hurts my opponents almost. Yeah, I, I definitely feel this one. Um, and, and I totally agree too. It's one of those situations, Matt, where I think the particular way we play the game doesn't lend itself to things that are kind of of a myriad does for the most part. Mm -hmm. So I get it. Yeah, it, it, it's an it, everyone out there who's like yelling at their <laughs> car stereo where they're listening to this or their headphones <laughs> in their office or wherever you're listening. How about how great this card is? It is undoubtedly an amazing card. It's just one <laughs> yes, of those ones yeah. that like the way we play the game for the most part, it tends to just not quite work the way it does elsewhere. It's so interesting to me because I think there's a, a two-mana sort of version of this. I think it's called Aethersworn Canonist, which is the artifact version. Mm -hmm. Like people can only cast uh, one non-artifact spell per turn. That one strikes me as being a lot more... Uh, like balanced against your enemies in a way. And that card, like in Artifact decks, I think pays off extraordinarily well. It doesn't have the, the land tapped thing, but like the, the restriction is the type of restriction that the deck naturally lends itself to being able to evade. Whereas, like you said, you go aggro. And in so doing playing aggro, you're also drawing like a bunch of cards every time that you hit us because you're playing like your Orin Frost Fangs and favorite cards like that. Yeah. So yeah. I can see how this card does interrupt everyone's tempo, but you are also looking for more of the Aether Sworn Canonist style where the entire deck is already pre-built to not be disrupted by its own cards in that way. And so like, yeah, effective card, but I can see where that different type of balance comes in with hate bear effects like this, because there are, are others that are, uh, they do feel a little bit more one-sided even when you're playing something like a, an aggressive deck. Yeah, and, and hate bear decks in general, I mean, they're built to operate on a completely different axis, or axis, I mm -hmm. should say, than your typical deck. So yeah, Aether Swarm's Canonist is great. If you're playing an artifact deck, then you're probably built to play around this, so this doesn't hurt you at all, whereas Archon of Amiria, it hurts everybody. So basically, <laughs> if you're playing anything that's in a Legacy Death and Taxes deck, you probably just need to be playing Legacy Death and Taxes versus whatever else we're trying to do here in Commander. <laughs> oh, wow. So I'm going to use that opportunity, since you mentioned a three-mana white creature, I'll move on to a three-mana white creature that ends up in my maybe boards more often. Like, I wish... I wish I could justify playing this card. I really, really do. It's Doomed Artisan. I I love this card, and I'm so sad that I'm not playing it. And it's only showing up in like 1,300 decks. Um, so it feels like this might be a card that is similar for a lot of other folks too. Doomed Artisan is a three mana, one, one human artificer. It is a mono white creature, and it says sculptures you control can't attack or block. And at the beginning of your end step, you create a colorless sculpture artifact creature token with this creature's power and toughness are each equal to the number of sculptures you control. So every turn it makes you a sculpture, and each of the sculptures gets bigger and bigger for all of the sculptures that this little creature has made and then you have to actually eventually get rid of the doomed artisan for those sculptures to be able to engage in combat i love this card the flavor of this card is off the charts for me this is so wonderful it reminds me a little bit of the card dig site engineer which also makes artifact tokens that get bigger and bigger and that is just a huge like i love that area of design i love that as a thing to explore for white and if this was a legendary creature, I would have already built it like a year ago. But it is just a slow rate of making these tokens that I, I just haven't been able to justify it. Like if it, if I could always have this on turn three and populate those tokens, oh, I would do it over and over again. But this card is harder and harder to justify in the token decks that I built because it is just slower than everything else that I'm doing. And I'm so sad about it. Well, and if you can compare this to stuff like Tender Shoot Dryad too, and, and all those <laughs> right. all those other effects, like this again falls into it only happens once per turn cycle. It happens at the beginning of your at the beginning of your end step. 
And also, like, if you were trying to play around with some, like, changeling tribal stuff, so you have a bunch of sculptures, quote unquote, in play. Oh, sure. That would be super <laughs> cool. But, then, yeah, it gets in your own way because then all of your creatures can't attack or block. You're like, oh, oh no. So, yeah, this oh. one, I agree, Joey. This one's really, really close to being very, very good. It is so close. I, get, I wish it was legendary. This feels like uh, this should have been a legend because I would have so much fun with populating all those tokens and, like, is my commander in play or not? Like, to, to get this to go in and out of play. But it, it builds a very self-contained thing. The sculptures only care about other sculptures, not about your other tokens in any way. So this card has to do its own thing, and it's hard to make an entire deck. I don't know, if I'm building a token deck, more often than not, what the rest of the deck can do is make like 10 bodies in an instant. Matt, like you mentioned with the Tendershoot Dryad, just make a bunch of bodies, and a single pump spell will make them so much bigger than any number of sculptures I could ever hope to create over the course of three turns. And that is the tragic part to me. So I love this card. I just... It, it's like right on the cusp. I, I keep on trying to justify it to myself, but it just doesn't quite get there. And I'm, I'm, I'm a little sad about it, but yeah, doomed artisan, doomed indeed. My pick next is a removal spell, kind of. Um, Soul Shatter. It's it's two and a black for an instant. Mm. Each opponent sacrifices a creature or planeswalker with the highest mana value among creatures or planeswalkers they control. Um, that's a great piece of value for three mana. You are almost at any point in the game going to generate more removal cost than you are what you spent to cast that spell. For three mana, you're gonna hit the the scariest things in many cases that everyone controls. That's fantastic. But you're not always gonna do that, and that's why I tend <laughs> to not run Soul Shatter. Uh, I put it in a bunch of decks, but when it comes time to cut down to 100, I always think of those situations where somebody had something else to sacrifice other than the thing that was the problem. and. I want to solve problems. I don't want to just generate value. So that's the reason Soul Shatter, for as good as it is in Commander, doesn't really ever make the cut in my black decks. And so there's a couple other spells I kind of lump into this. Animate Dead props to mind, Joey. I know you love Animate Dead being the necromancer oh, yeah. yourself. Mm -hmm. um, but outside Reanimator decks, same thing is true. That's always going to generate you value. You're almost always going to get something worth way more than the two mana you spent to cast it. But I don't want to have a card in my deck that I'm just going to use to generate value. I want to have a card in my deck that's going to very clearly and very specifically advance my agenda uh, versus just generating me some, some some kind of slight edge over my opponents. So that's why that, you know, outside of a reanimator deck where you're guaranteed to have targets, it's always going to be good. But I don't run animate dead just generically in black decks either. Um, so th th this is kind of the rough category I have of cards that generate you value consistently but don't necessarily advance your goal of the deck. This this makes a lot of sense to me. Like, and hey, anime dead. I, I am I am I love the graveyard. I will try to make any deck into a graveyard deck. I built a Shorakai reanimator deck in blue and white for, for Lord. Like I this is I'm devoted to it. But you're right, animate dead does not show up in any of my non-reanimator decks, like my goad deck or anything like that, because of the value play. And I can see how Soul Shatter sometimes gets in the uh, gets in the way here. Like this looks to me like a similar effect of a personal favorite card in Mardu of mine, and that's Crackling Doom, which is that Mardu instant deals two damage to each opponent, and then each opponent sacrifices a creature with the greatest power among uh, their their creatures but soul shatter hits by mana value rather than power so sometimes you are hitting not the actual thing you were worried about and that can be a little bit dicey sometimes those moments are like ah, this removal spell doesn't actually save me doesn't actually solve my problem even though it is a good spell it's kind of only good maybe I'm taking Umbridge because I, I feel like since I said a card that Dana has challenged before isn't great for me, <laughs> he's doing the same thing back. So I actually love Soul Shatter. I challenged this card a while back in Challenge of Stats because <gasps> it is like I it's it's always a three for one. Well, unless they just don't have anything on the battlefield. In ca that case, you probably don't care about them. <laughs> but I love this card, so it's it's funny that we're turning the tables on cards that we both have have said are are. Sure. Fairly good. Um, but yes, I, I can see situations. And sometimes if somebody cheats something into play, like a Terastodon, sometimes the damage is already done and, and a, a yeah. fairly big right. just vanilla creature is fairly manageable compared to something that's going to have these bombastic turns. So I do get why there would be some situations where this kind of falls short and it's just, it's good. <laughs> it's, it's not exciting, but it's good. Uh, so yeah, I, I, I get that. 
and maybe one important point here to mention too is is this is what the cards that didn't personally make their way out of our maybe boards. It doesn't mean they didn't make their way out of your maybe boards. Like, yes. uh, like yeah, a yeah, lot yeah. of things here uh, revolve around personal preference, personal play style, your metas. And, and this is an example of one where with my personal play style, it doesn't make the cut. That doesn't mean it shouldn't make the cut in, in other people's decks based on how they play, how they brew, where they play, that kind of thing. And also what those commanders are. Like, yeah. I, I, I'm certainly not going to be like, Dana, I can't believe you're saying that you don't like this sacrifice card, which does wonders in my Masarek Kral Death Priest deck. Exactly. Like, which is a deck that cares about sacrifice in a very specific way. And therefore it is, as you said, furthering the agenda of that type of deck. But that's not the type of deck that you're always playing. Like, that's what makes some of these so thorny and different. And just the mere fact that you guys have, like, accidentally unre-challenged each of each other's challenges. Yeah, that's, right. Is, like, so perfectly descriptive of exactly exactly this phenomenon of yeah. how different yeah. this is and how nuanced and how beautiful that that is as a result. That's what makes Commander so rich and amazing. I mean, in true Dana fashion, then he's going to talk about how aid from the cow is in his maybe board because he right. likes to also <laughs> repeat my challenge of stats picks. Yep. Uh, so that, that will come full circle. <laughs> well, speaking of challenge of stats. Yes, let's let's see if you guys have anything to say about each other's challenges this week as well. Let's move to it. All right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's so much data on EDHREC, but we sometimes don't agree with it. Sometimes we think that cards see too much or too little play. And sometimes we apparently don't agree with each other either. So we love to <laughs> challenge those statistics. Matt, real quick, you get in first because, you know, if Dana copies your challenges, we'll know, but only if you go first. So so start us off, my dude. I, I can start us off. So this is a card I guarantee Dana hasn't challenged yet because uh, for two reasons. A, it's in a new set, and B, it's okay, you know, when it comes to popularity, uh, but it's also a white card, so that's maybe why Dan hasn't challenged it yet either. Uh, so that card <laughs> is Halo Fountain. It's from Streets of New Capenna, which has been out for, you know, a month or so now. Um, so we've gotten a decent amount of data. People are very excited about the set. Uh, the numbers reflect that. We don't get three color sets very often, so there's a lot of commander goodies out there. But when you have a one, you know, a monocolor artifact, this two and a white artifact, that has a lot of words on it. it uh, so it has three abilities. One, you can pay a white and tap it to untap a tapped creature you control and you create a 1-1 one, one green and white citizen creature token. You can pay two white and tap it to untap two tapped creatures you control to draw a card. And you can pay five white mana and tap it and you untap 15 tapped creatures you control and then you win the game. <laughs> so there's a lot going on here, but I do like it in a few specific commander decks. Uh, mainly, those commanders are going to be Creature are going to be commanders that can tap themselves relatively easily so that you have a creature to be untapping. Uh, commanders like Amara, Soul of the Accord, the whole deck relies on tapping Amara. So when it, Amara says whenever Amara, Soul of the Accord becomes tapped, you create a 1-1 one, one white soldier creature token with lifelink. So that deck is chock full of effects like Cryptolith Rites, where you can tap your creatures to generate mana. Mm. You have Glare of Subduel, where you can tap your creatures to tap down another creature. So all of those decks have ways that you're already doing some tap and untap manipulation, which is, I think, is a perfect home for Halo Fountain. There's a couple other commanders that immediately come to mind. Uh, Katilda Darnhart Prime gives all of your humans a way to tap for free. Ooh. You generate a bunch of mana. So if you have 15 creatures, you could tap them all for mana use five white mana to tap this, and then you untap them again and you win the game. Like this is just a, a very, very kind of slides right in. It's already doing things that you already want to be doing. Risk the Redeemed decks, if you have that, that's also another deck that A, generates a lot of tokens, B, taps very easily. Mm. So I think there's a lot of nice homes for Halo Fountain, but it doesn't seem to be catching on quite that well in these types of decks. You're only seeing it about 8% of Amara decks that have been updated so far since Streets of New Capenna came out. And that's almost 1,100 decks for Amara alone. Oh, wow. So I just think if, if you need a great utility card that just happens to have this you win the game ability stapled onto it, I think this is a wonderful home. So if you're one of the 4% of Katilda Donhart Prime decks out there, good on you because I think you're ahead of the curve. I, I understand it's a new card. It's about five bucks, so it's it, it it's not super cheap, but I also think it's fairly attainable too. So if you are able to get your hands on a Halo Fountain, folks, I think this is wonderful if you're playing any sort of token deck, especially when the commander can tap and untap fairly easily. 
Yeah, full, full disclosure, I read that Halo Fountain and I wanted to like it, but I was like, I don't know. Usually this color is all about like pumping up and giving vigilance. So when will I ever? But like, oh yeah, you just named some amazing homes for that. And uh, you and your Selesnia tricks, dude. Wow. I, I do what I can. I, mean, I don't even think that this is strictly a Selesnia. Like if you're playing, my Alibu deck loves finding ways to tap all these artifacts and all these artifact creatures. <laughs> so Alibu... Uh, the the uh, Strixhaven commander from the precons back then, that would be another great home for this. Interesting. Oh man, that's that's interesting. So okay, cool. Now we'll move to Dana. Dana, uh, tell us about your challenge this week and why it's Halo Fountain. Um, my challenge is Halo Fountain, <laughs> and the reason why um, <laughs> a listener challenge this week was sent to uh, me by listener TV Boy, and the challenge is for coveted jewel in Ozgear, the reconstructed decks. It's only in 26% of Ozgear decks in EDH rack, which isn't enough for isn't enough for it to even appear on the Ozgear page. Um, for those who don't remember, uh, coveted jewel is six mana, and when it ETBs, you draw three cards, and you can then tap it for three mana of any color. And when one or more creatures an opponent controls attack you and aren't blocked, that player draws three cards and gains control of coveted jewel and untaps it. Um, Ozgear, on the other hand, <laughs> has an ability for, for one mana, you can sacrifice an artifact, and target creature you control gets plus two plus O oh, until end of turn. And you can also spend X and tap Ozgear and exile an artifact with mana value X from your graveyard and create two copies of the exiled card and activate that only as a sorcery. So what you wind up doing functionally if you um, are playing Coveted Jewel, you cast it for six, tap it for three, um, and you're drawing three cards, of course, mm. spend one of those three mana to sacrifice it so no one else can get control of it and give something you control plus two plus O as well as generate a sacrifice trigger. So it's basically a better harmonize if Ozgear's out. Then the next turn, you spend six mana to make two copies of it, which draws you six. You can tap it for six, so you become rev you can become <laughs> mana neutral at that point. Yeah. And you can sacrifice both copies for, for two mana to give something plus four plus O. Oh. So you functionally draw six cards, give a creature plus four plus O, oh, and um, generate two sacrifice triggers, if your deck cares about that, for two mana. So over two turns, you're spending six, drawing nine, giving your creatures plus six worth of power, and generating three sacrifice triggers. That's really, really good in any color combination, let alone in Boros. So TV Boy, I am on board with Coveted Jewel and Oscar decks especially. That's a real good card and should be in more than a quarter of the decks in EDH rack. That is so good. D TV Boy, first of all, amazing name. <laughs> Second of all, uh, if folks have ever watched the Upping the Average series that we do on YouTube, we take the average deck list from any commander and then we make some swaps to it to take that average deck to, you know, above average. And if I recall correctly, when I made an Ozgear video in the Upping the Average series, Coveted Jewel was already in that deck. I think it might have already been in that precon or maybe in a related precon there, but like, I remember it being pretty popular for Ozgear, and maybe this has like slowly gone down as more artifacts have, have come out and like kind of taken people's attention. But like, yeah, don't let this card go down in popularity for Ozgear. That is such brilliant synergy. It's so beautiful and really disgusting. Like this looks like a political card, but for Ozgear, it just isn't. It's nothing but upside. I love this. Don't let this card sink down. It's so good. Thanks again to TV Boy for the suggestion. We appreciate it. Heck yeah. Uh, and you know what? It's funny that you would have an artifact pick for your challenge this week, Dana, because uh, my pick is also related to artifacts, but it's in a different color. And I am curious, Dana, if you have heard of this card. It's called Vermiculus. Are you familiar with Vermiculus? I, I don't think I know. I am not. Cool. I like finding cards that Dana has never heard of. It makes me feel warm and happy inside. So Vermiculus is a five mana horror. It is a one one. It's from, I think, the original Mirrodin set. And it says whenever an artifact comes into play, Vermiculus gets plus four, plus four until end of turn. And I think y'all know why I'm using this as a challenge, because it says whenever an artifact comes into play or enters the battlefield and treasures are a really big deal right now all across the battlefield. But if you are playing any deck that cares about making a whole lot of treasure for yourself, if you are casting, you know, the famous Dockside Extortionist and making like 10 treasures right there on the spot, Vermiculus gets a plus big, plus big, Matt, I think is the, <laughs> the technical term there. Is that correct? 
That is the technical term. Yes, that is what they use it in Studio X. There you go. <laughs> plus big, plus big. Keyword big. I think that might actually be a term that they use in Studio X. Uh, but yeah, Vermiculus is very fun, but it's only showing up in, get this, 41 decks total. 41 decks total for a card that could, if you just play one artifact, it's a 5-5, not the most impressive thing in the world, naturally. But if you are making a lot of treasures with a lot of treasures with any degree of regularity, this could really easily swing in as like a 20-20 without even breaking a sweat. And it can also get way, way bigger than that. So I think that this should be on more people's radars because this little uh, Vermiculus, which is a very funny name, could actually get really, really horrifying. And I just... Yeah, I, I wanted to put that out there. Dana, I hope that this uh, keys in with the artifact wavelength that we're on this week. Very, very, very cool picture. I like it. Sweet deal. Yay. Uh, again, I like finding cards that Dana's never heard of. It means that he can't <laughs> steal my challenge, the stats, as he is apparently want to do. <laughs> I'm just going to take all of Matt's for the rest of the year. I'm just going to go easy mode and steal <laughs> there, all there the cards is. Matt brought up. I mean, they, they are wonderful picks. Like, I, I, I get it. <laughs> All right, let's move back to talking more about our maybe boards. And Matt, I'll throw it back to you if you want to find another card that's in those maybe boards that doesn't quite make the cut and why. Uh, so one that I I actually probably was one of the more powerful cards back when Dane and I used to be playing Commander, you know, back in the day, the the paper boomers, whatever you want to whatever oh, you sure. want to call it. Uh, so that card is Elvish Piper, and this is one that actually I have I have an old old version of it uh, from the original printing back in Urza's block. I want to put it in a deck so bad, but it just never makes the cut. So Elvish Piper is three and a green for a elf shaman. It's a one one that you can pay green and tap it, and you may put a creature card from your hand onto the battlefield. Short, simple, sweet, and it's awesome. But this card always has a massive target on it. <laughs> as soon as people see an Elvish Piper, they're like, "Oh, that's that's bad, right?" That's really bad, and and usually it is. <laughs> they're, they're correct, but at the same time, this has to, A, it doesn't have haste, so you have to find some way to give it haste if you want to cheat things into play, mm. but also this like people go for it right away, and that doesn't also mention you have to have something big worth cheating into play in your hand already, too, so that doesn't always happen. There's just, it's kind of like Aid from the Cow. There are just a bunch of hoops that you have to jump through with this card, <laughs> and everything has to line up. I think this card is one of those that, people love like it's just been crept out of the format i think if we looked at the all-time data versus the the past two years only kind of decks this would be in a lot more decks but it just hasn't been able to find its way because as dana mentioned a few minutes ago there are so many just great cards that you find yourself cutting other great cards to make room for great cards <laughs> it's not that this has gotten any worse there's just more competition for those slots and it just it doesn't make it anymore that's a really good example of, of a card that you really consider running, but you wind up winds up getting edged out just because of competition. When you look at the commanders that play this card still the most, it's a bunch of boomer type of commanders too. Uh, <laughs> Mael of the Anima. That's that's one that I mean back from a Lara block, which was a great block. That was C Commander Masters back in the day, but also Xenagos, God of Revels from Born of the Gods. These are all commanders that. Nothing really new is playing Elvish Piper because the, a it's it's a fairly old card and you know hasn't been reprinted in a while either, mm. but it's just it's a lot of these old kind of big gruel beaters and all those decks like the most recent commander that's playing this is Hans Eriksson from back in Commander Legends. Um, that's already been a while since that set came out for one, but also that's just not really a very play deck and it's only playing this twelve percent of the time. Wow. Yeah. No. I. Uh. That's very, very interesting. Also, I love, Matt, you're kind of almost like uh, plagiarizing yourself a little bit because you keep on naming green cards that cheat things into play. <laughs> so, like, That's true. Well, because it's such a fun thing to do, but also I mean, fair. <laughs> there's a lot of really efficient ways to do that these days. It's it's not hard to yeah. find some way to, I mean, I have a whole deck about doing that and both of the, you know, two of the cards that I mentioned so far would be wonderful for this, but also they're just... <laughs> There are just so many other ways to do it now. Yeah, it's especially because a thing that your deck can do is just like make a bunch of mana regardless, which helps you cast any type of spell. And you are these days able to make so much mana, say, for example, with like a Zendikar Resurgent, even though Dana's not playing it, uh, that will help move forward any of your game plans instead of just this one card that only helps you cheat creatures into play. Um, and maybe there are cast triggers that you want as well. Sometimes that can like get in the way too. So like, I totally get it. Dana, I, I apologize for being sassy. Actually, no, I don't apologize for being sassy. <laughs> Sassy. I apologize to being sassy to you. <laughs> I appreciate that, Joey. Thank you. Even though you are also not playing it. <laughs> fair. Also fair. <laughs> yes.
So, so I, I have I have one here I will I will bring up for for cards that I really really try to make work and in just they don't make the cut because they're not consistent enough. Whale of the Nim, um, Heroic Intervention is an amazing card. Being able to save your stuff from a board wipe, um, even if you save one target, is an amazing thing to do. Being able to give yourself hexproof, give yourself indestructible. It's, it's a blowout many, many times. Teferi's Protection is the same thing. And so having seen how good those cards were, I kind of started digging for maybe other ways to do that. And Whale of the Nim was one of the cards I tried. It's, a, it's an instant in black, two in a black. Um, choose one. Regenerate each creature you control, or it deals one damage to each creature on each player, and you can entwine it. So for four mana, you can do both. One damage to each creature and regenerate all of your stuff. Um, those are both pretty useful modes, but the one I was most interested in is regenerating each creature you control. And the first time I got to cast this card, it was into, I believe, an austere command, and I saved all my Ooh. stuff, and I was like, I found another piece of tech here, just like Heroic Intervention or Teferi's Protection, that I'm going to be running in a bunch of black decks to save my stuff. And then like the next six or seven times I went to cast it, it was against a board wipe that had Do Not Regenerate, or exile. Uh, so I was like, well, someone cast a Merciless Eviction, and I was like, okay, that didn't do me any good. Someone cast a Damnation or a Wrath of God that said creatures can't be regenerated. It doesn't work. It's a card I liked a lot and has potential to be game-changing in mono black, but there's just too many situations where it whiffs because there's enough things that have that do not regenerate clause. There's a couple other similar spells. Wrap and Vigor in green regenerates all your creatures. I tried that, had the same amount of inconsistency. So I think, like, collectively, I'm talking about cards cards that, in theory, have a huge game impact, but they're just not consistent enough for one reason or another for you to, at least for me, to slot them into a deck because they don't always do the thing I want them to do. Okay, can we pause for a moment as we're talking about Whale of the Nim here? Dana, I was looking this up, trying to find, what is this card he's talking about? I don't think I know this card. And I'm looking it up and I cannot find it. I just cannot find it. There's no card named Whale of the Nim because I was spelling it as like a whale. One of those fearsome Mirrodin whales. <laughs> there's just like one of those sea creature sure. whale of the So just felt like everyone deserved to know that. There I we guess, go, yeah. <laughs> talk about this card um yeah no i just wanted to announce embarrassment on the podcast <laughs> the thing that i wanted to do <laughs> no i feel you though like i play golgari charm in in uh some of my golgari decks and that has a regeneration clause too but it also has two other modes so even in the event that the regeneration can't save me there are two other useful modes including like a destroy enchantment effect or um like a minus one effect and it's also only two mana so like i can see how this effect yep. solely can kind of like not be quite enough because there are a few other cards there are titans like you mentioned the heroic interventions that are doing it but there are also like even cheaper cards that are pulling off similar tricks to this card that also have other things that they can do too so the three mana gets a little bit harder to justify it as time goes on. Well, not only that, I think Dana just wanted to talk about a card that's in under 700 decks so far <laughs> on EDH rec as well. That's, I think that's what Dana really was trying to do here. I, I needed to make up for my Zendikar resurgent pick. That's in like you know, 200,000. <laughs> there it is. There it is. Yeah. Yeah. Well, now we've learned that Joey doesn't know how to speak whale. <laughs> uh, okay. I'm going to move to one of mine here and it's actually in a pretty similar vein to uh, the ones that you just mentioned there, Dana. Uh, I'm going to talk about Tangle. Tangle is a two mana green fog effect that is always just on the cusp of making it into my decks, but I can never actually justify keeping it in there. Tangle is a two mana instant in green, prevents all combat damage that would be dealt this turn, and crucially, attacking creatures don't untap during their controller's next untap steps. Uh, so that is kind of amazing. If you're being attacked, like a, a big full blowout from one person, you play Tangle, it fogs, and it keeps them tapped for one turn. So that can really open, like, complete payback, open them up to retribution to a crackback attack it's awesome and yet i still just don't quite end up keeping this card in the deck mostly because if someone has vigilance then that you know untap effect doesn't work on them at all but also because there are so many other amazing champion type of fog effects out there there's arachnogenesis for example which matt you and i love that card it's a very expensive card though so that's not it in is. all of my decks but even when i'm not playing the arachnogenesis in the deck i'm also competing this card against cards like moments peace which is a fog that has flashback so you can get two uses out of it or blessed respite is a fog that also shuffles someone's graveyard 
graveyard away. So it hurts them on two different axes there. If someone's about to go off with a graveyard effect, or if they're about to try and swing for lethal, or both, then that's a, a double-pronged sword that I can uh, fight back. Or even um, Obscuring Haze is another one, which is also actually a relatively cheap card, and it's free to play if you control a commander. Like, all of those cards pile up against Tangle, where I just, ah, it's competing against some really amazing fogs. So this fog that I love just it, it ends up being like the fifth best one for those decks and I don't have room for five slots to do that one thing so I gotta be choosy um yeah I, I totally agree there's just again Matt talked about cards with competition competition is a, a big thing I think that hurts tangle for sure and green isn't necessarily a draw go color <laughs> you leaving up one green mana maybe doesn't feel bad for a fog that you don't use once you get into the two or three mana territory it better do something really spectacular to justify leaving up the mana that you might have no other way to use in that particular color. Mm. And I'm not sure. I, I think Tangle's on the cusp. I think I like it maybe more than you do, Joey, but I get your point. I, I also don't mind leaving up one for a fog when you start getting into leaving up two mana and then not using it. That starts feeling really bad and there better be a really huge upside to justify it. Interesting. I do think I would like. I do think that Tangle should see more play than Fog, but I also I would never play Fog. Uh, sure, because sure. there are the moments, the moments pieces, and the blessed respites that I can play instead. Mm -hmm. They give me so much more value, and that that one to two mana difference isn't a huge deal for me. But like the extra payoff for like the blessed respite of like shuffle the graveyard away, that's huge. That feels enormous to me. So I like I would play Tangle over Fog, but I'm also not playing Fog, and that's the problem I run into. Yeah, there, there's. It's kind of like four mana and five mana board wipes. There's so many out there now that you mm -hmm. you have to be fairly picky with what you're trying to play, because there's just a lot of options out there. So mm. unless it's cream of the crop type of upper tier in that category, you, you're just not going to be playing it. Wait, isn't cream of the crop a green enchantment from like Shadowmoor? One of your and will you challenge that card on challenges stats too? <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Oh, oh, are you stealing other people's challenges, Matthew? Is no, that I was, I was, yeah. <laughs> I tried. Well, amazing when turns of phrase work themselves into magic lingo like that. That's true. <laughs> Let's just move on to another maybe board pick from you, though, instead. So uh, my last one that I'm going to bring to the table, I'm, I'm probably going to lose a lot of our followers, and I'm very, very sorry about this, but uh. I have a whole category of cards that are just, they're perpetually in my maybe board, and it's just Planeswalkers, period. I just, huh. I struggle to find room for Planeswalkers in general, uh, mostly because if the Planeswalker is powerful enough that it can kind of stand on its own, it has a huge target on its back. And it's maybe you're going to get one activation out of it before mm. everyone kind of realizes, oh, th that's a problem. we got to get off the table. Or if it's not one of those types of commanders that is kind of kill on sight, it's not really doing things that are powerful enough that you need to get rid of it. So you're kind of in this, is if it's too good, then it gets, rid of, it gets targeted right away. But if it's not good enough, then it's just not good enough. You may as well be playing some other card that is. So it's... <sighs> I want to play more Planeswalkers. I just never feel like, I, A, I'm able to defend them. I always am playing aggressive, more or more aggressive decks, I should say. So I'm not able to defend Planeswalkers very well because to me, you want to be able to get at least three activations off on your Planeswalker to, in order for it to kind of be worth that slot. I rarely find myself being able to play Planeswalkers uh, in, a, in a situation where uh, I'm getting those three activations and just more often than not, I don't get the value out of them just because of the way I tend to build decks. I am fully aware that these are great value engines and sometimes can take over games completely, but the way that I just tend to build, it doesn't end up being very friendly to having these Planeswalker cards in there that are just going to get targeted down right away. And I feel the need to immediately throw the caveat clarification, whatever you want to call it, that you're talking about having a Planeswalker or two in a deck. Right. You're not talking about Super Friends. I'm not talking about separate. I, no. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. No, no, no. Yeah. Just just putting a Planeswalker in a deck. Like my Selesny decks, a Johnny Mentor of Heroes would be wonderful. Uh, just I can't. I can't make room for it. Or blue decks, Jace the Mind Sculptor, one of the most powerful Planeswalkers of all time. I don't have it in any decks because I all my blue decks, I'm not able to protect it very well. Uh, I would love Liliana Dreadhorde General. Oh. That's one of the most, in my mind, one of the most powerful Planeswalkers for Commander. I don't have it because none of my decks that I would be able to put them in would be able to defend them for boo. And so it's just kind of a wasted <laughs> slot because I might get one, maybe two activations out of them before they're they're gotten rid of. And to me... You want to be able to hit that three activation slot. That's kind of the the, the net neutral in my mind uh, when you start to come ahead. And I just I never can seem to do that. 
I don't know why this is for me, but for me personally, when it comes to Planeswalkers, and, and again, we're talking like the, the one-ofs and two-ofs in decks, not just a Super Friends deck. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't want to run them unless they fit the theme of the deck somehow. Like if I was playing an Angel Tribal deck, I'd straight jam Sarah the Benevolent into every one of those decks. But I wouldn't have put her in any other deck because I like would want it to match the theme of the deck. I have multiple Tezzerets in my Vela Artifact deck oh. because Tezzeret fits what the decks are doing. It, it like it makes sense there. But as good as those Tezzerets are elsewhere, perhaps, I don't run them there because they don't make sense with kind of the theme of the deck. And I, I can't justify that based on power <laughs> or anything, but it just feels weird. Like Girk Wildspeaker is amazing, probably in almost any green deck, but I don't run it in any green deck because that's not how I build decks. So for whatever reason, Planeswalkers are this weird thing for me, at least, where I really want them to match what the deck is doing or I don't run them regardless of how amazing they might happen to be. And I think it's important to note that there are some times where the Planeswalker will be on theme. And even then, sometimes it comes a little bit short because of sure. you know it's, it's offering. So like you mentioned Sarah the Benevolent, which is a, a, a Planeswalker that reward, it pumps up your flying creatures and it gives you a flying angel. Um, I have mentioned that my family plays magic on this podcast many times because it is so much fun. And my mom has a flying tribal deck. She does not play Sarah the Benevolent in there because the pump, the plus one effect for the, the pump or it's a plus two or whatever is just like, yeah, it's, it's not really that compelling as it turns out because there are so many other things that the deck wants to be doing instead than trying to defend this one specific thing that can sometimes make a flyer occasionally. It, the value is tough to defend for what you're actually getting. Compared to, I've got my token decks that I mentioned, and I have the six mana Elspeth and Tevishzat Doom of Fools in there because, oh, they make so many tokens. It's a terrific engine. I can put those down before I play my commander, and I don't have to worry about spending mana to make tokens on the turn that I play my commander. It is absolutely perfectly in line. So there are, there are times where I'm just like, oh, Matt, that's so silly. I can't believe that you're not playing Planeswalkers. And then there are absolutely moments where I'm like, oh, Matt, I completely agree. I would not put a Planeswalker into these decks. So like, mm-hmm. I'm I'm not of two minds necessarily. I just like, I agree because I have those experiences, but I also disagree because I have those other experiences, and both of those <laughs> things are correct. <laughs> there, there, are, there are two wolves in, inside of you, Joey. Uh, which, which one will win? Yes, Matt, there are, there are two wolves. That's right. I'm playing parallel lives. The, the, the two wolves. Two wolves inside me. There's, it's the parallel lives. That's that, exactly what That is a card, actually, that I've had great success with, so uh, this is not on that list, but I appreciate <laughs> um, what you're doing there. So why don't, we, why don't we talk about another card? How about that? Can do, can do. I'll move on to a pick here for me, a card that is just still in my maybe board because I haven't quite been as happy with it as I wanted to be, and that's the card Cunning Rhetoric. So this is a three-mana black enchantment. Whenever an opponent attacks you and or one or more Planeswalkers that you control, you exile the top card of that player's library. You may play that card for as long as it remains exiled, and you may spend mana as though it was mana of any color to cast it. And this is definitely a popular card. It's showing up in 13,000 decks and power to the folks that are playing it because I can see the appeal. I have been also kind of dazzled by this effect. But the issue that I've run into it is that it doesn't actually defend you necessarily. So an opponent attacks you and you get to pilfer the top card from their deck and then, you know, you're gaining card advantage. But like the the problem that I run into is that people rarely like attack me with like one-off things. They tend to attack me with like it's Matt and he's going to crush me. This is an attack for lethal. So like the card that I would get is not enough value. And really what I need is something that's going to actually save my butt. Like a propaganda effect actually prevents this from happening in the first place if they're trying to attack with a whole lot of creatures because it is a real true proper mana tax on that player. Whereas Cunning Rhetoric, like there is an interesting bonus, but the value that it provides is not necessarily life-saving in the way that I need this type of effect to be. It reminds me a little bit of the card Hellish Rebuke as well, which is uh, another black card that also punishes people for attacking you. But the thing is, they still attacked you. You still probably took damage from that. And that makes this a very dicey thing. Really appealing. I want to try and make these cards work, but in my experience, they haven't actually saved me in the ways that I feel I need saving. Very damsel in distress, Joey. Yeah, Joey, I think you are absolutely right where you need to be able to survive long enough to get the cards to be played. And that's where this card really... It doesn't fall short because it's still a very powerful card. Mm. But, yeah, if people see this on the board, they're like, okay, well, I'll just ignore Joey for a little bit long enough, and then uh, I'll go in hard enough so that maybe he gets one, maybe two cards. But, 
I mean, unless people are just kind of poking you and, and kind of doing the, well, I'll attack you just to attack you type of game plan, then, then yeah, this, this is probably extremely powerful. But if people are only attacking you once, then yeah, you're not going to get very much value out of this. So this is one of those cards that falls in the category of you're depending on your opponents to get value, but also your, what your opponents are doing it can't be that powerful, otherwise you're just dead before you are able to use it. So I, I see why this is tempting to play, but also why this wouldn't be able to, to survive very long in decks. Right. This is the case where I would want that tangle here to protect yeah, me yeah, absolutely. in the first place, that kind of thing. And and if I'm playing a deck that like really cares about stealing cards from my opponents, like a, a Gaunti deck or any deck that's themed around it, like on theme, ah, oh, it's perfect, chef's kiss. But like I am very protective of my life total because I share this in common with Dana. I like to use my life total as a way of drawing lots of cards or doing lots of other things. So I want to I want to protect that life total so that I can keep, you know, drawing a whole bunch of cards with my, my fun draw spells that cost life to to draw a bunch of other things so that that i think is what informs me not playing this in my black decks because the way that i'm going to accrue card advantage i i need to protect that life and this card doesn't quite get there matt uh excuse me not matt dana i hope you that you can relate sorry matt i just know that you don't play black decks very often not often not often no i can completely relate um however my last pick for, for a card here is one that no one's going to relate to <laughs> okay um, this is going to be me and me alone um wandering archaic <laughs> Okay. <laughs> absolutely crazy powerful card that I've put in more than a few sideboards and never makes the cut into any of my decks. Not because it isn't powerful enough, but because it's so generically powerful and can go in literally every deck and you wouldn't be wrong that I don't want to run it in any <laughs> of my decks. Um, Mirage Mirror to a degree kind of qualifies as well. Although Archaic is definitely the example of one where you're just never wrong putting it into literally every deck for the amount of value it is going to generate the second it hits the field. And that's just so monumentally boring to me that it never makes the cut as strong <laughs> as it is. I put it in the in that first cut of the deck and I'm, I'm at 120 cards and I start like pulling things out and I, I, I wind up pulling it every time because I'm like, I want to run these interesting things that might interact with my deck in a creative way. And I just don't want to run this thing that's going to do the same thing in every single deck, which has generated a ton of value. Uh, it, it, it's good. It's a, it's, a, it ama- it's not good. Good is wrong. It's amazing. <laughs> but like, it's just not interesting at all to me in any way, shape or form. And there's a couple of cards that kind of particularly colorless ones that kind of qualify for that. Mirage Mirror is one because it can become a copy of functionally almost anything that's useful on the battlefield. And that also makes it very difficult to remove because you can turn it into a, a thing that can't be removed by the fellows targeting it. Oh, yeah. Amazing card that I don't run anymore. Mimic that similarly. There's almost no situation where Mimic that, which lets you make a copy of a creature that's put into someone's graveyard, it's graveyard hate combined with a tremendous amount of repeatable value. You're almost never wrong running Mimic Fat in a deck, and so I don't run it in any of my decks anymore. Uh, Isochron Scepter kind of qualifies as well. There's almost always something worth putting under Isochron Scepter that is worth casting every single turn, so I kind of don't do it because like, you can put it everywhere and do the same thing, and that becomes not something I want to do. So the, the just these tremendous value pieces of artifacts that can go everywhere, or at least colorless spells that can go anywhere, I wind up not putting them in my decks because I just don't find them to be particularly, uh, I keep saying interesting, but they're not interesting. So that no one else is going to agree, but those are that's my final one that never makes a cut from the baby board. You're absolutely right. I don't agree. I love Wandering Archaic. This this one made it into the main boards for uh, several decks for me. But to your point, I get why it being ubiquitous is the thing that would frustrate you. And again, uh, Wandering Archaic is that five mana colorless avatar from Strixhaven. Whenever an opponent casts an instant or sorcery spell, they may pay two. But if they don't, you get to copy that spell and you can choose new targets for the copy. Uh, it also has a back half, which is a three mana spell that no one has ever cast in the history of the entire game. It does not matter. That front half is where it is at and i play this in like my yannette deck because it's a five mana creature that'll just cheat right into play and uh you know this seems like a really great effect where dana if you're the one trying to cast that peer into the abyss this would be my version of the narset's reversal to make sure. sure that i can get that effect so i love it yeah this is i agree with joey this is a card that i don't think anyone has ever cast for the backside if you have no please yeah. please put it in the comments please please let us know 
Um, but I, in my anecdotal evidence, which is obviously very correct, uh, has never seen <laughs> the backside of Wandering Earth Cake. The front side is so powerful. There's just no reason not to be playing it for the front side. And there are commanders from the new Capenna commander set as well that are going to really harness this. Like there's Parnes, the subtle brush, which cares about copying spells or errant street artist is another one that definitely will love to play this because it copies things you've already copied. So this is just a really great effect for that too. So there are specific decks that would care about the copying effect a little bit more. And Dana, I wonder if that's the type of thing that would allow you to move it out of the sideboard and into the main board if your deck cared about copies or is it still kind of a no-go? Sure, maybe in that case, because it would be on theme enough that I wouldn't feel like I'm just running this generic piece that goes in every single deck. So maybe then, in that case, sure. I, I feel that. I, I definitely know that, Dana, the way that you build your decks is very on a specific theme, and you really like to go into that. So like, you know, with the Mirage Mirror example that you mentioned, that card is so ubiquitous that its ubiquity becomes a factor against it. I understand, even if, you know, for me, there's still cards that I love to play. But I, I do have to say, dude, that I am actually a little bit surprised that Wandering Archaic is a card that you wouldn't play because we've established this episode that you actually really love to steal stuff from other people. Whatever they're doing, you like to do it too. So I'm just surprised that Wandering Archaic doesn't make it for you when it seems just so perfectly on brand, actually. I have nothing I can say back to that. I, I will be forever punished for taking match challenge stats and it's, ju it's justified. It's justified. <laughs> awesome, awesome stuff. Listeners, we would also... We would just really love to hear about the cards that are in your maybe boards. What are cards that you can't quite justify playing? And are there specific reasons or specific things that maybe would change that up for you? And how many times did you have to give those cards a try before you actually did, you know, resign them to the maybe board? This is a very complicated thing. And these are crucially all cards that we constantly come back to and always reevaluate to see maybe our deck will want it now after all. So we would just love to hear about your experiences with this because it is one of the things that makes deck building so much fun. With that, though, I think we're going to call this episode to a close. So, fellas, if our listeners would like to get in touch with us, where is it that they can find us all? Matt? So you can find me on the Twitters at Mathemus55. That's M-A-T-H-I-M-U-S-5-5. And don't forget, Wednesday evenings, we are streaming over at twitch.tv slash EDHRECcast. We have guests on every single week. It's always such a great time. It's always fun just getting to meet other folks out there in this community. So, yeah, make sure you tune in Wednesday evenings, twitch.tv slash EDHRECcast. And Dana. You can find me on the Twitter birds at Dana Roach. You can hear me on my other podcasts, CMDR Central. I'm writing articles for EDH Rec and Commander's Herald. And you can find all of us together at patreon.com slash EDH Recast. And I'm Joey Schultz. You can find me at Joseph M. Schultz on Twitter, and you can find the cast at EDHRecCast on Facebook and on Twitter as well. Plus, if you've got a question for us, you can contact us at EDHRecCast at gmail.com. Our thanks go out once again to Chase for assisting me with the post-production of the show. You can find them online at Mana Curves. And we want to thank our sponsors, TCG Player and CardKingdom.com. Plus, you can visit Altersleeves.com slash EDHRecCast for cool, custom EDHREC sleeves. Listeners, we'll be back at you next week with more data and insights but until then, remember, EDH wreck your deck before you wreck your deck. Mm -hmm.